special Easter edition of the Madcast as we seek to bring the art world and church world closer together. My name is Matt Anderson. Today, as Holy Week ensues, I wanted to give you three unique perspectives from the most important weekend in all of human history. And so the Madcast presents three Easter stories. Well, I guess you could say I'm like a lot of 15-year-old boys getting stronger by the day and hungry for greater adventures. My parents, they can sense it too. They're quick to restrain me from plunging headlong into foolishness, they like to say. I try to tell them I'm ready for marriage and family, but they remind me I'm not quite ready. Hopefully I can soon show them they're wrong. As a Jewish boy in captivity, I long for the days when the Roman Empire no longer has its heel upon her back. If only the Messiah would come and fulfill the law and the prophets, overthrowing Caesar, establishing God's kingdom on earth with us at his side. Ah, if only. While speaking of Messiah, a man who some believe to be the Messiah recently came here to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He had been here for other feasts, but his reputation was now at a whole other level. Now, to try to explain Jerusalem during Passover is an impossible task. It really has to be experienced. It is absolute mayhem as pilgrims from everywhere converge on our city. It is exciting and annoying all at once. They've come to offer sacrifices, but many could not bring their own sacrifice. So the merchants raise their prices, knowing everyone has to sacrifice. And I guess you could call it price gouging. Even the turtle doves reserved for the poorest people, they're 10 times more expensive. Everyone is looking for a place to stay and... My parents allow my room to be used, so I typically sleep by the back door facing the garden. At least it provides a little bit of privacy. So anyhow, the man Jesus had been creating a lot of buzz in the city. He had reportedly been performing miracles and doing things no one had ever seen. Even at 15, I've heard my share of fake messiahs coming through looking for fame and power. Well, Needless to say, I was skeptical, especially when I heard he grew up in Nazareth, which frankly is a hole in the ground, in my opinion. Nothing good comes out of that city. And this is the man who will rule over the earth? 
And still, I made it a point this week to follow him and his followers at a distance so I could spot the obvious flaws. I'll just say it this way. This man had no intention of blending in. I mean, from the moment he entered Jerusalem riding a donkey and onlookers laying palm branches on the path before him, he was in the spotlight and the watchful eye of the religious leaders. The Romans always enter on horses, animals of war, but, but Jesus was on the foal of a donkey, a symbol of peace. But the high priest, his minions, they didn't see it that way. To them, Jesus was the competition. He was capturing the heart of the people and daring to call out them. Well, a few days later, Jesus returned to the temple. And again, I was there at a distance. When he took one look at the racket of selling sacrificial animals, taking advantage especially of the poor... He went and turned over all the tables. He freed the animals loose. Coins were everywhere. Animals were everywhere. Chaos was everywhere. I couldn't believe his courage. I mean, in my heart, those sales practices always bothered me, but I didn't have the heart to say anything. And now, here is this man, this Jesus, drawing the attention of very powerful people. They, they often talk politics around the dinner table. And my father tells me that the Jewish religious leaders in Rome, they have this strange arrangement. He says that they benefit from, uh, what does he call it? Mutually assured destruction. Pontius Pilate, he's the Roman governor over Judea. He is a cruel and vicious man, but he is also a politician. So if we Jews, if we riot, if we cause unrest in the city, Rome is sure to question his leadership over it. They will wonder if he has any control over his populace. But the last thing the Jewish leaders need is a stronger and more ruthless Roman presence here. So it's an odd arrangement, my dad says, but it seems to work. And now here is Jesus upsetting the apple cart and the natural order of things. I, I had not seen any previous messiahs act this way. Most of them would wilt under the powerful eye of Jerusalem's leaders. Well, last night, the first day of the feast, my mother informed me that she had rented out the upstairs for a group of men desiring to have a meal, so I needed to steer clear. She said they would be going well past my bedtime. Well, at some point during the evening, I was awakened by the sound of someone running. I could, I could hear hard steps above my head. Someone was in a hurry to leave, but, but it was just one. Upon hitting the ground, the unnamed man just sprinted away. I could see him from the back door. Had something happened? Did I, did I need to check on the renters to make sure everything was okay? Only then did I realize who was upstairs. As one of the ones left said, 
Jesus, we should go after him. I didn't hear the reply, but I certainly heard the name. I couldn't believe he was renting our upstairs. Wearing only my thin linen shirt, I sat up, I, I closed my eyes, and I listened intently to see if I could hear anything being said. I wasn't successful. Well, maybe a half hour later, I heard them sing a hymn together. Then I, I heard a massive shuffling of feet, and I could tell they were leaving. Well, I suppose my 15-year-old brain decided that I had to investigate. So climbing out the window, still wearing my linen shirt, oh, Mom would kill me if she knew. I followed Jesus and his small entourage, but, but at a distance, always, always at a distance. I didn't realize they were going out to Gethsemane Garden. Well, now feeling quite chilled, the rational part of me told me that I should go home, but I was, I was just too intrigued. This man had convinced me that there was more to him than the pretenders. I just had to see what he was doing, even if from afar. at the garden, he left most of them behind and took three of his followers with him. He then left them and walked to a remote part of the garden where he knelt and prayed. Now, even though I was about 50 yards away, I, I could vaguely hear his desperate cries and wails of grief. I have, I've never seen anyone pray like this. It was quiet but loud at the same time. I, I don't know what he said, but I have never seen or heard anything so authentic in my life. No crowds, no one to impress. This was no performance. This was an intense conversation. I shall never forget the sight and sound of it. Just when I thought about reversing course, and heading home so no one in the family would worry. I heard the clanking and marching of a detachment approaching the garden. They, they carried swords and clubs and they were headed for Jesus. Their walk was purposeful and it was fueled by determination. Jesus had joined with his disciples now and they faced the opposition head on. These weren't Roman soldiers, but their uniforms, they seemed to indicate they were from the high priest. A young man led them and approached Jesus. He seemed to have a familiarity with him and even kissed him on the cheek. He, he mumbled something, but I was way too far away to hear it. Whatever he said caused these guards to spring into action. A melee broke out. Jesus was seized and arrested. Fearing for their lives, his small band of followers just scattered in as many directions, fleeing as quickly as they could. One of them even dashed right past me. That's when I heard one of the guards shout, There's another one! 
I turned to find the voice that had just spoken, and we made eye contact. It, it was me. They were now after me. Even from my distance, I had been viewed as a collaborator. I stood there frozen for some reason. I, I had been exposed, or so I thought, until seconds later. A large, thick hand grabbed my shirt and said, You're coming with us. I turned to run away, but the stranglehold on my clothing was too strong, so, so I did the only thing I could. I removed the only piece of clothing I wore and ran for my life. I, I must have run 100 yards and just ducked behind a tree before I realized he didn't pursue me. Now, almost hyperventilating from adrenaline and panic, feeling alone and ashamed in a thicket of bushes, my fear quickly gave way to shame. What made me think that following at a distance would keep me from responsibility? What lies had I told myself that I was only a spectator, not a participant? I wanted to follow him, but clearly I didn't want to follow him, for I thought only of myself. While it would have been easy to blame his closest followers for running away, how in the world was I any better? These men had traveled with him for years. They had literally left everything to follow him. And what did I do? I literally left everything to flee from him. I had been held accountable for my curiosity of him, and I didn't want to pay the price. Some sense of adventure I have. I'm, I'm not a man. I'm not even half a man. I am merely a child. I am no better than Adam and Eve. My, my nakedness exposed and hiding from God and others. I can only hope that I make it home without my disgrace being revealed. If he is the one he says he is, I can only pray that he will forgive me. Sorry if that introduction makes you uncomfortable, but I figure it's best to start with the truth. They are nothing but invaders and interlopers. They believe themselves to be superior to God and his people, but they shall learn like others that it is not so. They shall learn as the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, and the Greeks. Kingdoms rise and fall, but the children of Abraham shall flourish forever. But rather than simply sit back and philosophize about the Torah and Talmud, about laws and rituals and holidays and sacrifices, I believe that God has called his people to be people of action. Unfortunately, many of my kin consider me to be madman. 
but they clearly do not see the method to my madness. People do not understand that I have a higher calling than they can possibly imagine. I believe I have been anointed as a sword in the hand of Jehovah God. So a few months ago, I decided that enough was enough. I believe that God wanted us to take action, much like David and Joshua of old, to topple the enemy. It was God's will that Rome fall, and I would be his emissary. I had been speaking with a number of friends quietly and carefully over the course of time, letting them know my thoughts, wondering if there were others who might join my cause. My friends then went to speak to other friends who then spoke to others. Our small band was progressively turning into a full-on revolt. I felt like it was our time to strike for who knows how long before someone from the Empire would find out. I set a date for the insurrection. Deprived of arms, we managed to steal a few swords, but like King David of old, rocks would be our weapons, as well as our fists, and of course the presence of the Almighty being with us. We believed we could not lose. Not only would Rome regret the day it took hold of Judea and leave, but I would be remembered forever in the oral histories of our people. by surprise in the marketplace that morning, I struck the first blow by thrusting my sword into the belly of an unsuspecting soldier. How do you say it in your culture? If you want to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. Listen to the stories of our people and you will see God exercising his judgment with far less than I had that day. After initial success, by the middle of the day, reinforcements were brought in from Rome to quell the revolt. We had hoped to gain control of the city before that happened, but alas, it did not. Not enough time, not enough munitions, Though many of my compatriots gave up and ran when they saw the tide turn, I fought on. But it clearly wasn't enough. I and others were arrested and locked away in prison. So the Romans used, let's call it, coercive interrogation techniques in order to decipher who was at the root of this riot. By the end of my second day in prison, I was beaten and tortured, ordered to recant everything I believed in, but I refused. Governor Pontius Pilate was both amazed and disgusted by the sight of me. All of them marveled at my refusal to accept their rule and leadership over our lives. After all, now I was a folk hero to my people. My hope was that others would rise to take my lead and rise up as I had done in order to abscond this menace from our part of the world. 
I knew people from house to house were speaking of my bravery, realizing that with only a few more people and weapons, we could turn the tide against our foe. But I made a serious miscalculation. I had underestimated the power of politics. I believed that I had put Pilate in a precarious position. Surely word would get out and reach Rome that the Jews were kicking up a fuss again in Judea, and clearly Pilate does not have governmental control of the territory. And anything that made him uncomfortable brought me great pleasure. Maybe it would cause them to say it wasn't worth it dealing with Judea. Maybe it would be the last straw and they would pull out of the land given to us by Jehovah God. But I was wrong. Very wrong. Pilate decided to turn the tables. He called in a legion of soldiers for the sole purpose of entering people's homes without warning, practically destroying everything within in their hopes under the guise of searching for illegal weapons. As they ransacked each domicile, the soldiers were careful to say, you can thank Barabbas for this. My own people turned against me blaming me for the upheaval now in their lives. I went from being a legend to a byword for the foolhardy. It is quite clear there will be no further uprisings, and even more clear that no one was coming to my aid. Here is where I would await my trial, an inevitable death sentence. Until Passover. Once again, I had underestimated the power of politics. Fortunately for me, so had Pontius Pilate. Even in prison, a man hears things, and it was clear that whole week that Jerusalem was abuzz with an energy unseen since the day I had led the uprising. I would ask the guards about it. Who, who was the source of all this commotion? Most of them would not respond, but one took the time to say, Oh, you should know. He's one of yours. I had no idea of whom he was speaking. He then told me what he had heard about Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, my God, Nazareth of all places. Apparently, he was claiming to be the Messiah. I have to admit, I hadn't even thought of that one. But if you're going to be branding yourself as the Messiah, you probably shouldn't be from Nazareth, or at least admit to being from there. You probably shouldn't have a dead carpenter for your father, rather than the Lord of hosts. This man seemed to have all the earmarks of insanity. So why had he created such a stir? I was told that he had performed miracles. He had caused the lame to walk, the blind to see, even the dead to live again. I'm sure it was just cheap theatrics, but it must have been enough to ensnare the masses. Now, he was making his Passover appearance in Jerusalem. 
Apparently, this guy was making a lot of enemies in a short amount of time. He almost had me beat in that department. As I recall, it was the morning of the second day of the feast, and I was awakened by the sounds of a chanting, gathering crowd. It was hard to make out what the flavor of the protest was or who it was directed to. That is when I experienced the surprise of my life. My guard opened my door, bound my hands, and led me out of my cell. I said, where are we going? He only responded, you'll see. Within minutes, I found myself in the grand audience chamber of Pontius Pilate himself, the Roman governor of Judea, and the object of my hate and scorn. Sitting upon his elevated seat with a guard at either side, he told me I was going to be facing the crowd outside and that I was to be a part of a Passover tradition. He thought he was going to educate me, but I know what he was alluding to, because from time to time, to appease us Jews, the Romans would occasionally free a prisoner. Sometimes they would offer an indulgentia, which is to free a convicted prisoner. What he would offer the crowd this day was abolitio, or freeing a prisoner before trial. The crowd would choose between me and another. And who is the other prisoner, I asked? A Jesus of Nazareth, Pilate said coolly. I started started laughing. And, and what do you find so amusing, the governor wondered. And I said, it's clear what you're doing here. You're trying to get rid of a problem. I've been hearing about Jesus all week, and it sounds like you have no reason to punish him. But clearly, he's ticked off a few people. So you figure if you put me out there as a choice, as opposed to him, they'll pick him and you get off the hook. Do I have that about right? Well, Pilate stiffened and yelled, I am not asking for your approval. Another word and you'll be scourged. That was incentive enough to remain silent. They added chains to my ankles and within five minutes shuffled me out onto the portico that overlooked the crowd. The people immediately reacted to my presence. It seemed to be a mixture of delight and disgust. I, I couldn't tell. Moments later, they ushered in Jesus. The reaction to him was about the same as mine. While I was trying to sway the crowd in my favor with limited success, he just stood there passively, innocent of innocence. Uh, he and I could not possibly be more different. I took the direct, violent approach. He took the measured, peaceful approach, and here we both were. Regardless, I already knew the outcome. I had personally been responsible for greater Roman oppression. This man wouldn't hurt anyone. The choice was simple. I just wanted it to end so I could go back to my cell. Yet, as Governor Pilate began to explain the custom and how the crowd would choose who was freed, I noticed the religious leaders and their minions filtering through the crowd. What did they have to do with this? Shouldn't the Passover keep them busy enough? Clearly something was afoot. 
So when Pilate asked who should be free, I received the surprise of my life. I began to hear my name, me, the, the man who had brought so much pain to their lives. They were yelling my name. They screamed, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. I could see the scribes and priests almost ordering the audience to repeat the refrain, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. I turned and looked at Pilate, who stood in the middle of us in complete shock, and he returned the same expression my way. For once, politics had bitten him on the backside. He wasn't expecting this. So as a concession, he said, and what do you want me to do with this man, Jesus? And in unison, they shouted, crucify him. The crowd was out for blood. Thankfully, it wasn't mine. Ever the politician, Pilate had no choice but to free me. But before doing so, he found yet one more way to cover his tracks. He had a water basin brought out so he could theoretically wash his hands in front of everyone and say he had no blame in what was about to happen. <laughs> the people just sneered. I looked at him amused. Like, that will help you sleep at night, I thought. Within moments, I was whisked away. My chains and bonds were removed, and I was literally shoved into the street. Now a free man. And Jesus was sent, without a trial, mind you, to face the worst of deaths. <laughs> I can't believe my luck. I still can't quite explain what happened that morning. All I know is, I'm free. And the odd thing is, I guess I have Jesus to thank for it. Listen, um, what, what I'm about to tell you, I haven't told anyone for a very long time. In fact, I don't think I've even told anyone. I've literally been paid for my silence. So um, I would deeply, deeply appreciate your discretion. I, I still remember the day I was given the assignment and <laughs> frankly, how insulting it was. I was called by my superior who had apparently met with the governor. It was the Jewish Passover festival, and the empire had crucified three men that particular day outside the city of Jerusalem. I mean, no big deal. We have crucifixions all the time. It's how we uh, remind the native Jews who's in charge and what happens when one dares to defy the authorities. Well, for some reason, one of the men sentenced to death was... I guess, attracting a lot of attention. He had been a bit of a wanderer and attracting a following. And many were believing him to be the Messiah. That's the, uh, the Jewish myth of, you know, one of their own who rises to power and overthrows all governments and authorities and establishes their supposed, quote, holy kingdom on earth. But, you know, I suppose all societies need their myths and legends to give them hope. 
So, like most people without authority, I was following the orders of someone who was following the orders of someone else who was responding to the complaints of someone in power. I guess that's the way it happened. Or at least that's how my superior explained it to me. Apparently, this Jesus guy had the religious folks all in a tizzy with all this Messiah talk or something. Anyhow, they clearly didn't like the guy, thought his followers were going to pull some kind of stunt. I guess the plan was that they were going to get into the tomb in the middle of the night, close it back up, bury his body somewhere, and then claim that he rose from the dead or something like that. At least that was how it was explained to the governor by the religious officials who explained it then to the head of the guard who explained it to my superior. So I was ordered to take three soldiers with me and we were to guard a tomb. Not kidding. Guard a tomb. (laughs) What an insult. I have fought in battles and shed blood. My hands are made for combat, not for guarding ridiculous tombs and dead people. I, of course, said none of this to my superior. I simply responded, yes, sir, and found three soldiers under my command to join me. Now, normally, when someone is crucified, we do nothing regarding burial. I mean, we just allow the elements and the local wildlife to take care of the carcasses when the convicts are dead. But Jesus seemed to be a bit connected. One of the Sanhedrin, the same group that was complaining about him, they seemed to have a member who took an interest in him. Joseph from Arimathea, he approached Pilate to see if he could have the body and then bury it. And since Jesus wasn't convicted of high treason, he gave his permission. Now, the tomb was cut out of the side of a limestone hill, but it it had not been used yet. Now, most of the time, there are already bodies entombed within, but this had none. In fact, I guess Joseph borrowed the tomb to protect it while he was going to make other plans for a permanent resting place. When you think about it, our presence there could not have been more unnecessary. I mean, the tomb would ultimately be closed off by a great stone, and I mean weighing tons. It wasn't so much a round disc, as as those are quite rare, but kind of a squared-off, cork-shaped blocking stone that was set on an incline in a channel cut in the rock. So it would be easy to cover the tomb. You basically let it loose and guide it down the, uh, the decline so that it's in front of the opening. One man could do that. But it would take a lot of men to roll the stone back up the incline. Now, while the stone blocked most of the entrance, there would still be small gaps in which vermin or insects or sometimes humans could sneak in. So it was ordered that the grave now be sealed with a kind of a soft clay to fill the gaps. The seal was imprinted with the Roman imperial seal. It was attached to the stone with a rope. So breaking the seal would obviously incur the wrath of the empire. I mean, no one was going to overcome all these obstacles. But for some reason, this was still not enough for the high priest. They insisted on Roman guards, so there we were. 
I place one on either side of the stone, a third to sort of roam about, and then me positioned to supervise them and look for possible intruders. Now, this is where it gets a little hazy. My detachment and I had been at the tomb for probably 10 hours or so. This was the easiest duty imaginable, but still we had our orders and we had our way of doing things as soldiers. It was, it was my job to make sure no one was slacking in their duty. No soldier was allowed to sit down or even lean against anything while they were on duty. But during the night, while it was still dark, a strange haze and fatigue came upon all four of us. At first, no one said anything, but my regiment started yawning for no apparent reason. I, I mean, I told them to stand fast because we still had hours to go on our duty. Well, then I began to feel suddenly tired. I don't know, maybe it was the effects of the last few weeks or the air outside the city. I, I don't know, but... The, the four of us suddenly found ourselves drowsy beyond expectation. Even as I gave orders to stand fast, I was personally overcome with fatigue. And within moments, each of us were on our knees, and we finally gave in to the urge to slumber. I have never done anything like that in my entire military career. Now, if you think sitting or leaning gets a soldier in trouble... What about sleeping on the job? I mean, if a guard member falls asleep, he is beaten and he is burned with his own clothes. In addition, sometimes the entire guard unit was executed if only one of the members fell asleep while on duty. All of us had committed the unforgivable sin as soldiers. And when we awoke, the seal had been broken, the stone had been rolled away, and the body was gone. We had failed on every level, and now we were panicking for our lives. So rather than reporting to our military superiors, we went to the Jewish religious leaders to explain what happened. Perhaps if we could appease them, they would speak in our favor to our authorities. Well, they told us not to worry, that probably some kind of elixir or incantation was used on us by Jesus' disciples, and that they had taken the body. They told us to simply tell others that the disciples had stole the body during the night while we were asleep. They would take care of things with the governor to make sure we would not get in trouble. And while it didn't make us look very competent, it may at least save our lives. And that's exactly what happened. At least um, that's, the, that's the story I've been telling the last few decades. But I can't keep this inside anymore. Look, you won't let this get out, will you? I mean, the truth is, I don't really know what exactly happened that night. My men and I were wide awake and alert. I saw no one within eyeshot of the tomb. But then it happened. I mean, suddenly there was an earthquake unlike I had ever experienced before. It, it violently shook the ground beneath us. All of us, all of us lost our footing. I, I feared the hillside may crumble, collapse, and bury us alive. 
then something else appeared that frightened me from that day to this. A bright, powerful figure unlike anything I had ever beheld appeared in the air. It was awesome and fierce. I didn't know if it might be Apollo or Jupiter himself, but it was not of this world. I only saw it for a second or two and suddenly I lost consciousness. I went from incredible light to complete darkness. When I finally came to, it must have been hours later, it was just me and my three fellow soldiers. The seal was broken, the stone was rolled away, and the body, it was gone. Yes, we did decide to go to the Jewish religious leaders first to offer our explanation. That, that's when they made a financial deal with us. They would pay for our silence. In return for protecting us from the governor, they would pay us a certain sum. And we would tell anyone who asked that the followers of Jesus had stolen his body after we somehow fell asleep during the night. You're the first person I've told. This hasn't been repeated to my family, my friends, trusted colleagues. Yeah, I was discredited from military service, but I was able to find a trade to provide for my family and move on with my life. But one thing I cannot settle in my mind was what I saw that night. It was the first time I realized there was something more powerful than us, more powerful than Rome, more powerful than the religious politicians who manipulated their countrymen. It's a question I have pondered more as I get older. Was the body of Jesus really stolen or? Oh, you must think me mad, but I tell you, if you could have been there, if you could have seen what I saw that night. Is it maybe possible that he really is alive? We appreciate you being a part of the Madcast. We wish you an incredible Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday, and we hope to see you again soon. This has been a production of Monumental Ministries. For more information, go to mattministry.com. 
Thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time.